I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to Talking Golf History, Episode 74, The Legacy of Willie Park, Part 2. In this episode, we dive into the history of the Park family members who came after Willie Park Sr., namely his brother, Mungo Park, and his son, Willie Park Jr., both followed in seniors' footsteps, winning the Open Championship. There are a lot of historical nuggets to be had in this podcast, including the speculation that Willie Park Jr. may have fallen into madness before his death in 1925. We left off Part 1 talking about how Willie Park Sr. won four Open Championships and was only paid for winning two of them. We dive into the story of Mungo Park right now. Let's move away from Willie Park Sr. He's a fascinating story, but one of my favorite Park Family Open Championship victories, despite the fact that I have artwork of Willie Sr. on the wall here, is of an Open Championship winner that you share a name with, Mungo Park. Hmm. Do you know much about the uh, the Seaman Open Champion? I, I know a bit, yeah. Um, there, were, there were four four golfing parks in that generation um first was archie who was archibald who was the second oldest son so there's six six sons in total the the first son um john was well we don't know of him as a golfer but but the four four golfers were archibald willie mungo and david um so Mungo was was Willie's immediate junior in that in that order. Uh, it's said that he went away to sea as a merchant seaman and um, came back and immediately won the Open Championship. Isn't that remarkable? Well, it would have, but I don't think it happened. That Not way. quite like that. <laughs> he, I, I found his. Um, his papers uh, where he joined the Navy and he, he didn't join the merchant Navy. He joined the regular Navy. So he signed on for, I think it says 10 years after the age of 18. Mm-hmm. So he signed on when he was 18 and he was in the Navy. He signed on, on HMS victory. In fact, which was Nelson's flagship, um, which was by then a, an administrative center. Um, after that, it seems that he he went into general merchant seamanship, which which I think is more likely uh, to be uh, the case in terms of his golf. So he could he could play golf when he was ashore. He could take his clubs with him. Um, interestingly, he's he's supposed to have um, 
laid out Almuth golf course on uh, on the east coast of Northumberland. He was certainly professional there um, later on, but Almuth started in 1869. Well, he was still at sea at 18 in 1869, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility that he was working coasters down there and would take his clubs and would augment his his income playing playing the gentleman or laying out a few holes for them. I, I'm not sure of that one, um, but it, you know, it doesn't seem unreasonable. Anyway, whatever way, he was clearly getting a good amount of golf and he, he was uh, an able golfer and, and, and came in by a pretty extraordinary margin over uh, another young upstart, that Tommy Morris from yeah, young Tom Morris from St Andrews, who was at the top of his game at the time. I mean, that was a that was a hell of a win. But you know, these things happen on the day, don't they? That's so true. Yeah, if Tommy Tommy was having uh, an off day and and Mungo suddenly hit his stride, well. Great. You know, that's what that's quite That's awesome. why we play the game, right? Yeah, that's right. It's a stupid game, but it, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. So true. And he beats young Tom Morris, four-time open champion in his 20s, uh young yeah. Tom Morris that is in his prime. Yeah, it's just it's remarkable. And you know, you're right. As the story's told, if you were to believe the story as it's told is basically they they pulled Mungo off of a ship. <laughs> As he's going out to sea, you know, give it, I mean, you know, that that's obviously embellished, but that's, that's kind of the oral history that we hear, right? That he's, oh, no, 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 you know, wait to go on your, you know, even though he wasn't in, you know, a seaman anymore, but don't go out to sea, play in the open. And he just takes somebody else's clubs and beats the greatest golfer that ever lived. Yeah, no, I mean, he, he was a club maker himself. So we know that. Um, And there are clubs made by him around uh and he was he was clearly a well-practiced able golfer who'd been doing it for a long time and you know he he too would have been impressed when the gutty ball came in um and i think he would have been yeah he would have been 13 in 1848 so you know again just at the time when a young man sort of looks around and this is a great enthusiasm i can get into this and and caddying could make some fairly easy money and, you know, enjoy the game of an evening. So he, he becomes yeah. the second Park uh, to win an Open. Uh, and then born the year after Willie Park's second Open Championship victory, Willie Park Jr. set to make his own path in golf. Now, many golf historians have referred to young Willie as golf's first professional renaissance man. How was young Willie cut from a different cloth than the other professional golfers? And how, how did he help change the game? Yeah, young Willie is, is uh, of all the golf golfing park ancestors, I think the most interesting guy. Uh, he, he really did seem to make himself um, and to make his own career. And and I, I don't I don't know if he was you know, a driven soul or 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 what or you know how do I know he he may have been somewhere on the autistic spectrum sure yeah, yeah for all we know right uh, 
but but he his focus and his ambition seems to be absolutely steadfast all the way through. Uh, and I've recently done some in, interesting research because the story goes that he went down to work with his uncle Mungo at Almuth, which he did, and that he came back in 1884 um, from having, having laid out Wrighton for uh, for, uh, Willows uh, for Timeworth Golf Club. Um, Have I got that right? Is it Tyneside Golf Club? There are two, Tyneside and Tynemouth, and he was involved with both of them. But anyway, he he came back from Wrighton, which is where they originally started started off, Tyneside. Um, And he came back because his father was ailing and he immediately started to run the family business, which is not right. Um, oh, that's not again, right. No, it's one of these things that, that you know, stories been pieced together, but it, the pieces are a bit wrong. And the, the only reason, the, the person who says that it's not right, I mean, you know, don't trust me, I'm only a historian. Um, the person that says it's not right is Willie Park Jr. And he says it uh, when he was... And again, we didn't actually, we knew he'd run into trouble financially at Huntercoon, but we didn't quite realize how much he was, he was made bankrupt in 1912. Um, and, and I researched it and looked into the bankrupt bankruptcy statements at register house in Edinburgh. And there's a statement by Willie under oath that tells us one or two things that we didn't know. And the, what's pertinent in this case is that Willie came back from Wrighton, that's right, uh, and started his own company in 1884. So what you have... Is what type of company are you talking about, Mungo? Club making. Really? Yeah. Huh. So he's making clubs, and so is Willie Park Sr. in the same town at the same time. I did not so, know that. So, That's interesting. So the idea that he came back and took over the running of the company is not right. He came back and he started his own company. So there are clubs now that that are that have the the name W Park Musselburgh on them. They're Willie Park clubs. There are other clubs with William or Wum W M W M. Yes. Park, um, and if they're before 1893, then they're Willie Park Senior Workshop. Probably not him himself, but because um, if they're after 1893, that's when Willie Park Junior took over the running of his father. So Willie Park or Senior, absorbed it, perhaps. Yeah, he retired in 1893, basically, uh, and Willie Park took on the name. And, and I think after that, clubs existed with both the W Park and the William Park, but they were made under the... Interesting. Under the yeah, that's very cool. I didn't know that. I mean, it would bore anyone who's not interested in... <laughs> Everyone. We have all these people that just <laughs> right. want to hear about opens, and they're like, oh, my God, please move on. 
But yeah, I'm fast. I have Willie Park oh. clubs, Willie Park Junior long noses over here behind me, which is why I find that interesting. I didn't know that. You've got Willie Park. Junior Willie Park. Nose? Yeah. So it's like a semi long nose. Uh, see uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I won't even go over there. I'll unplug it somehow. I do have. So, I do have a Willie Park senior club over there as well really long nose i mean it's yeah well, that, that, I mean, that is almost certainly willie park senior then yeah if, and Actually, it will have, let me show you this nobody's gonna, gonna see this at home but watch okay. this yeah let's have a look put my put my headphones back on i have here a willie park senior silver putter good lord yep w park i mean the thing weighs 50 pounds but the detail, I don't know if you can see it from this image here, but the detail, I don't know if you can, can you see the thread in silver? So where did that come from? I have no idea. And the grip, I mean, the detail is just, I don't know if that camera's picking up the detail. Yeah, yeah, no, I see the... thing weighs too much for me to hold out like that. Grip wrapping. Yeah. And does I, it have a stamp on top? Uh, yes, it's just uh, W Park. Yeah, isn't that interesting? That's that's interesting. I wonder where that came from. I have no idea, but it it is it is a large, expensive door weight. No, it's yeah. not. <laughs> I don't use it as a door weight for the record. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't have any any record of Willie Park making silver clubs. No, I I, I assume it. I don't. I don't. I, I doubt he made it. It's a trophy. Yeah, I think it's a trophy. I I doubt he made it. I don't know the origin or of it i've looked into it and have not been successful thus yet but if it's but if it's a long nose of well if it's a but it could just be somebody making a long nose trophy using that as an example you know years later which is probably i mean willie willie park senior wasn't a rich man so unless someone paid him to make that club but i mean he wouldn't have had the forge to be able to do the silver he wouldn't have had the skills to do it. Um, yeah. You, you know, if you're going to make a club like that, you'd go to someone like Alex Kirkwood or, you know. 100%. The trophy but the weird thing is there's no other stamping on the club. So, you know, like I, I've gone through that club with, a, you know, not a microscope, but just looking at it as close as I can. There are no, no – I was hoping for like a maker mark or something like that, you know, under oh, – cool. The putter? When it was made, wouldn't it? Exactly. But there, alas, nothing. So here it is, this mystery of a silver club that basically strained my shoulder to lift up, you know, vertical. <laughs> so uh, Willie Bark Jr., he, he wins the Open in 1887 and 1889. Uh, it could be said that he's the last golfer of the original Open age, which ran from 1860 to 1889 to win the Open. In 1890, golf changes uh, and expands, if you will, when John Ball Jr. not only becomes the first amateur, but the first Englishman to win the Open. And a couple years after that, Harold Hilton uh, follows him from England and also an amateur. And then a couple years after that, the great triumphant. What are your thoughts there? I mean, Willie, to me, Willie Park Jr., and this is only going from his illustrations and the books that he's written, but his style is very much... Um, the style of Willie Park, you know, senior and Tom, you know, Tom Morris, that old St. Andrew's swing of swinging around the body versus uh, more of a modern swing. Would you agree with that assessment? 
I'd I'd never seen his swing before I visited the St Andrews Museum. You've um, seen the video of it, yeah. That drive is it, yeah, is an extraordinary swing, isn't it? It really is. It's a very much lower. Yeah, just swing. around him, it's really unbelievable. It and and it's full body too. There's a lot of body movement in there. It's a sort of athletic swing. It's really trying hard. It's the sort of thing that would be a complete disaster if I tried it. <laughs> That's so true. I've thought about that because for uh, a, about a period of three years, I, because I'm insane, Mungo, I only played gutty golf. So I decided that for me to write about it or, you know, understand it better, I played hickory only for a while. But then I thought I really need to go into the rabbit hole and I'm only going to play gutty golf. So I had... Uh, you know, Dr. David Brown, oddly enough, not related that, to my knowledge of the Open Championship from Musabra. Uh, he was making gutty balls. And I have a set in that corner that had the Willie Park Jr. Uh, semi-long nose driver I was telling you about, along with a McEwen putter, a McEwen brassy, and Carrick iron. So it's an all Musabra set. Right. And yeah. for three years straight, I, didn't, I gave up modern clubs and just played gutty. And... It was I. It was unbelievable experience. Did you have therapy for that? I should have. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you this: that um, my head pro, after seeing me convert back to moderns, uh, threatened to only give golf lessons to people with hickory shafts I because your timing has to be ideal. You can't be quick, and you have to be slow. And you have to be slow. Yeah. Backswing. Wait for it. And just wait for the whip. So, you know, when we talk about Willie Park Jr., you said it yourself, one of the most fascinating Park Park family members. I mean, he's really one of the most fascinating golfers in the history of our game. Because uh, whether fair or not, uh, professionals were really painted into a a small, you know, corner, which was you were essentially a caddy. And he took it to another level. He's a golf course architect. He's an author. Uh, he's their open champion, golf course architect, uh, ball maker, inventor. I mean, he really checks all the boxes, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, and 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 a great self publicist. I mean, he one hundred percent, yeah, manipulated you know his, his position and uh, uh, great commercial sense of what what worked and what didn't work. Uh, I mean, the whole. The whole thing about the the offset putter, which is possibly his greatest legacy. Yes, I, I think Pete George D. He has written several books on the history of golf clubs. He calls it the bent neck putter, one of the top ten most important golf inventions in the history of golf. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. Uh, and yet, the way he sold it um, is that it was a happy accident that he had a clique that fell under the cu- uh, under his his carriage wheel and it, and it bent, it bent the clique and he thought he'd just try, try a putt with it and found it was so successful that he developed it into a putter, you know? So you embellish a narrative around an event that possibly never happened. Right. And just to make it charming. It did, but uh, you know, it seems unlikely. Um, And it seems unlikely that the carriage wheel would bend it at just the right point. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> uh, but it might have. Um, but he. But he did. You know. And that was a very successful seller. And there are a lot of them around. 
No. In fact, I putt with one all the time. That That's my putter. With a Willie Park Jr. patented yeah. putter? Yeah, just because it, it actually works best for me. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I have a friend in Chicago, uh, Brian Labardi, and uh, he'll love the fact that I brought this up on the podcast, but he was struggling with his putty. Now, um, Willie Park wrote, I believe, the first ever book on how to putt, The Art of Putting. Is that fair for me to, before we go, is that not true? No, Junior. That's what, I'm sorry, that's what I meant. But I, yeah, yeah. yeah, Willie Park Jr. wrote the book, The Art of Putting, and had beautiful illustrations. And my, my buddy Brian was struggling with his game, something fierce, his putting. And I literally, as a joke, said, you know, Brian, you should get this book, and it's going to change your putting style. And, you know, it, you know, the putting style, it's well open. I mean, he's, he's standing yes. at what, 30 degrees open, 40 degrees oh, open. Yeah, that's amazing. The, the feet kind of cockeyed and, you know, really hunched over. And I go back to Chicago and that oh. bastard beat me with that putting style. He made everything and he was thanking me profusely. And I just said, God, I'm like, that was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, he puts like Willie Park Jr. Isn't that yeah. amazing? I love that. I, what's what's interesting that for me uh, is that is that is that open stance that yeah, that, and I could never work that out because you see pictures of Johnny Laidley and um, Willie Park all with that wide open, you know, almost facing the hole, uh, and I think it may be something to do with lawnmowers because in those days you couldn't cut a green you know the greens then were not smooth they weren't sort of 10 on stimp they were they were sort of raggedy uh, and and cropped generally by sheep and if you were lucky aside and so to get a ball to move on that you would have to pitch it up now if you if you do that with a blade putter and you putt it straight it, with a normal modern stance, it just won't go anywhere. It'll stop, stop in the long grass. If you open the face up a bit, you'll get some loft for the first two, three meters, and and then it'll and then it'll carry on rolling. But if you do that, it'll shy off out to the right. So if you then twist your body and do the same, interesting, front, yeah, it's. It, it it's quite a good shot from the edge of the green. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, you know, and and that so that myself. that's also why you see those putters. Uh, if you look, if anybody's using a hickory shafted putter, if you ever find that you are putting with a hickory shafted putter and you're leaving putt short, it's often because the loft of those hickory shafted putters were increased. I mean, Willie Park um, patented putter. Some of them are ten degrees lofted. 12 yeah. degrees lofted for that yeah. same reason. I think that's right. I think you just have to get over the... You have to get it rolling because otherwise it just sits down in the grass. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Willie, Willie Park Jr. can also be credited. I think everybody, um, if I get my history right, I believe every Open Championship winner since, uh, I want to say the 1890s, owes Willie Park Jr. a debt of gratitude because prior to the 1890s, the RNA was giving out gilt medal, gilt gold uh, on the Open Championship uh, medals. 
And if I'm not mistaken, it was Willie Park Jr. Did he not refuse one of his open championship medals because he it was said to be gold and he challenged them that it was not? Do you yeah. know this story? I know that story. I, I, I'm slightly puzzled by it. But, um, that he sent back the 1889 medal. Yeah. Uh, because it because it wasn't it wasn't gold. Well, he'd accepted the 1887. <laughs> he medal, still had that one, right? And it wasn't gold. So yeah. it doesn't quite ring true, that one. Um, I mean, it, it, it may well be. And, and I think there is there is a report, a contemporary report to say that, you know, if if they can't give me a gold medal, then I'll, I don't want it. Well, I, yeah, I don't know where the 1889 is. I know where the 1887 is, but, um, you know, there's a collector on your side that has that. Um, yeah. And that's silver gilt. Um, Isn't that interesting, though? Um, I mean, but he changed it. I mean, after that point, they started going to, you know, real gold medals. Gilt was well, a thing of the past. Yeah, the the... 1892 one came up recently at auction um, way beyond what I could afford <laughs> but uh, but that's gone to a good collection too um, and that's that's a lovely medal that's but it's a round medal it's that's another thing that's interesting too you're right I was just going to bring that up in 1892 it changed it's the one year that I'm aware of that it's not the oval traditional open championship medal that's that's right. Um, what do they award now? I d I've never. It's seen still it. yeah. It's the oval. It's the oval it's one now. It didn't. Right. Yeah, it was round. I think, to my knowledge, only for that one year. The really? quote unquote stolen major. That's, <laughs> that's no. That is. That's unusual, isn't it? Yeah. So let, I, I, we've talked a lot about the park men. What can you tell me about the park women? Because I believe we have a champion golfer as well in the, in the in the midst of the park women in Argentina. Am I wrong? You, no, you're right. Um, although the, the park genes can't really be credited for that because she was That's a monster. true. That's true. Um, so my grandfather won, uh, the, won the first Argentine Open Championship. Well, it was called then the Open Championship of the River Plate, Open Golf Championship of the River Plate. Um, and he won three of those. 1905, 7, and 12. Um, but in 1904, his wife, my grandmother, whose name was Grace Park, well, Grace Morrison originally, um, she won the Ladies' Open Golf Championship at the River Plate. Just the same, same design medal. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Um, uh, so she won the first of those in 1904, and then she also won it again in, I think, 1908 and 1910. Um, so she was clearly, clearly a good golfer playing within the expatriate community out there. I mean, you know, my grand my grandfather went out there in 1904. He went out. He'd been working with Willie Junior at Huntercombe, which was Willie's development in in um just up from sunnydale uh, and it was at the same time that sunnydale was being built uh, he he started one at, at huntercombe on his own account which was to be the the well it, it, it he overstretched he didn't have the finances to 
to cope with contingencies when they occurred there, and they had a lot of trouble finding water. So it basically broke him. But um, my grandfather went to work for him as manager, and fairly early, I think, saw the writing on the wall. And having been brought back from America originally, he 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 had married my grandmother um, in 1900, and then. Uh, gone straight down to Huntercoom to manage it. And then in 1903, he's heading out to Argentina to take up a post at, for the Buenos Aires Golf Club. And he then built their, their course at San Andres, which, is, which I played in, in 2007. I went out for a centenary visit. Love it. Absolutely. It's sort of early in my golf history interest days. Uh, and it was it was charming course, really nice. Um, and he, he stayed out there until eventually he went back up to the United States uh, and where he'd started his career as a, as a young man of 18, 19. Uh, he, Willie had taken him over to run his shop in, in New York. Um, and he, he went back up to the States to basically pick up Willie, who had by that time had 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 a breakdown after his his second. I mean, the interesting thing about Willie Jr. is that he went bankrupt in 1912. He carried on building golf courses. And then in 1914, obviously nothing happened because no one was building courses because we were at war. Right. Uh, and in 1915, he, he was too old to be part of the war. In 1915, he went over to the States and started a new a new career. Yeah, reinvented himself, essentially. Yeah, extraordinary um, to pick yourself up from that and just sort of dive off into the mid-blue yonder. And 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 he did extraordinarily well in those eight years that he was... Oh, married, yeah. Amazing golf courses. He, he built or, or attended to over 100 courses. That's, and that's an extraordinary workload. No wonder he broke down. Uh, it is an extraordinary rough workload. And I have a feeling it was somehow to make amends for the fact that he lost the first business. I don't know whether that was to himself or to his or family or or what, or his, or his debtors, you know. Um, what, what do we know about that breakdown? Do we know much? Because, um, I mean, a lot, I mean, it's tough to find, I'm sure, a written record on this because, you know, yeah. that was not something that was all that acceptable in that era, right? I mean, you know, it was frowned upon and shunned and, you know, you didn't talk about things like that. No. Uh, We know that George Colville, who was an early historian of the game. um, I I have his book. Five Open Champions. Yeah. He was the registrar, local registrar, and was a great friend of the Park family. And he found Willie a, a place in Craig House, which was the sort of the top mental hospital at the time. Uh, and Willie went in there, I think, in some distress and uh, eventually died there. Um, it's sad. Someone, how long was he? How was how long was he there for? Uh, I think it was only a year because he came. He died in twenty five. Yeah. It came back from the States in 24. So, yeah, it would have been just a year. Um, someone 
I was at a, a British golf collectors, a literati meeting uh, where we get together and talk about all things history. And there were two doctors there. And I showed a picture of, of Willie in his later years. Um, and they looked at it and said, looks like, looks like thyroid problems. Interesting. Um, and there's something called, uh, and I'm not a doctor, so I'm going <laughs> to get lost in this, but I think there's something called thyrotoxicosis, which, uh, gives you a peculiarly staring eye. Okay. Enlarges the yeah. I've seen that photo now that you're you're mentioning. Yes, and he looks you know pretty pretty scary. Um, And thyrotoxicosis couldn't be treated at the time because they hadn't. It's normally treated, I think, with um, penicillin, Um, and it and it led to madness and death. Oh wow. it's possible that that's what it was, but but we don't know. Tragic, yeah, tragic. Mm. Just in in a short time, right? Yeah, but he'd obviously been working working hard right up to that time because there are, you know, um, I mean, it's a hundred golf courses in a decade that you would say, yeah, yeah you're overworked, right? I love too. Yeah, yeah, and they're good. I mean, they are. I think the states probably has some of some of his best work. Yeah, it's great to see some of you know some of these courses being restored. Yeah, I know Andy Staples did one up in Michigan, and I believe he's um, doing the master planning at Olympia Fields. Uh, is, yeah. I just you know, it's great seeing those Willie Park features come back to life. You know, just because the anatomy of a golf course and the evolution of a golf course, unfortunately, if if not taken care of, we lose some of those grandiose features. And to see yeah. them to come back to life in the way that Park inspired them is really amazing to uh, me yeah no i think olympia fields are doing doing really really good work um, yeah we, there's a guy bob topol yes do. actually yeah right we had bob on the podcast we did uh yeah, we did yeah. a two-part episode one on the restoration and one on the history of olympia fields that that spoke mm. quite a bit about willie park's work there he's he's very knowledgeable and and i think you know bringing andy staples on was a really good move so yeah well, thank you so much, Mongo, for coming on the show. I, I really want to have you come back on um, to talk about Masabra, because I think as as fascinating as the parks are, the undertold story of Masabra is, well, it's near and dear to my heart, as that wall will tell you over here in my office, but it's it's an underdog story. And it's not really an underdog story, because they held their own. It's only an underdog story, and then it's an undertold story in golf history. It's fascinating and it's it's a rich story and uh, lots going on with it, and and it would be yeah it would be nice to be able to put it. I in mean, just I mean, the, yeah. W- when do you expect your book to come out? Uh, we hope it'll be out in a year. Okay, I'll be one of the first ones buying it, one, and I think as soon as it comes out, we'll let's do a show if you're okay with it, promoting the book and yeah, no. and talking about it because I just think. Uh, it runs in the family. Free promotion. <laughs> <laughs> if you could use the Willie Parkinson's letterhead and the scroll, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, 
Mongo, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I know you're not in the uh, the golf clubhouse architecture business anymore, but the cover of that book, if you could have be Willie Parkinson's and then list all the open championships and then just put your name with no open championships next to it down at the bottom. <laughs> Maybe I could put my last, my last medal score. That's know. right. I'm telling you right now, that should, be, I'm telling you, this is what you're going to do from now on your business card. Let's elongate this one. It'll go this way and it'll be the Willie Parkinson's font up above and then all the list of the open championships and then your name and number right below. Uh, uh, that's promotion right there. Of course, yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, we have, we have actually uh, registered a company, Willie Park Limited. Oh, that's fantastic. That's so good. Um, and, and I think my, my daughter will be sort of taking, taking that on. And I love it. Mostly, mostly really just to protect the name. And, yeah. You know, yeah. We felt it it's smart. I agree. Did it. It's smart. Well, thank you again, Mongo. I had a, a sincerely just a fantastic time. I yeah. uh, I love talking about the Park family. I love Mossbro, as you know. Uh, the combination of which makes me near giddy. Uh, well, we must get you over here. I I have. I you know what I you know I'll tell you. I'm ashamed to say this because I have played Mossbro, the old Mossbro links, and unfortunately, I played it with uh, hickory shafted clubs. I had a set that was essentially near identical, if you will, to the the clubs that Bobby Jones used in his prime. Oh, yeah. And I played, Musselboro was the first course we played. Uh, then we went St. Andrews, and then we went over to uh, Prestwick and played. And my one, the one thing I look back and I'm, you know, disappointed at is that I just see Musselboro links and I'm like, man, how did I not play gutties on that course? I mean, it just yeah. begs to be played with a gutter percha ball. Well, it does. And I, I mean, I, I, I've never played a gutter percha ball on a on a on a. It's court, it's basically I, like hitting a rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no compression, none at all. It just goes tick, uh, <laughs> and it goes but nowhere. I, I do play. I do play soft field and and hickories. And, yeah. And I think. I think there's a potential for hickory golf to be a modern game. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Because it brings back into play all those courses and all those features on old courses that are lost or have to be taken out because we're hitting too far. And it's just more sustainable. You know, if you have shorter courses, they use less resource yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah no. But I, I'm telling you right now, I mean, my next trip to Scotland, I'm bringing the gutties and I am, I will not do that at St. Andrews. I am not, uh, I'm not, you know, that cruel to myself for sure, but I certainly would play that gutty set, that Carrick McEwen park set at Musabra. And I think I could play that to the end of my days every single day and would be perfectly content and happy. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Because that course is really perfect for it. You know, it's not. Yeah, yeah. No, I like. I mean, what? It's a shame that they don't actually have some some better clubs that they lend to people. I've yeah, up there and borrowed some because I hadn't taken mine up there, and they weren't in good condition. Yeah, that's and, and that's the thing. The I thing with hickory got, shafted clubs and gutties, you got to take care of them. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Well, let me ask you before we go, and I, maybe this will kick into our next show together on Musabra, but. How do I ask this? Does do you think Musabra? 
appreciates and fights for their golf history as a whole. That was the purpose of the 2018 exhibition, um, was to put something in the center of Musselboro that showed them what they had. I think they don't. Yeah, it's sad, right? There, there are people there that do, and they're, they're keenly enthusiastic and, you know, really, really want to make the name more significant and to adopt its, its proper place. But I don't think anyone's done a huge amount of research. Um, and so there's, they don't know the story that they need to tell. Yeah. Which is partly why I'm writing the book. I think it's great. I think it's great. I enjoy doing research for myself. Now, yeah. You know, that's, that's interesting. And I delve into it and, and I have a great time doing it. But I also think that if I can give them a story that they can tell to other people, then it becomes part of Musselburgh's, you know, it, it's selling point. And, yeah. And it, it's, it's not a wealth. It's, it has suffered from the diminution of industry in the area. And it was an industrial town before that. So, you know, it doesn't have the, uh, the cachet and the, the presence that St. Andrews have has, and it never did have. Uh, so, yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I feel the same way when I was there last, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to say this. This was over, God, it was over a decade ago, but, um, I went there because, you know, I, I had landed in Edinburgh and I was like, oh, there's here's this course that's held multiple open championships. It's nine holes. That's interesting to me. Um, I knew a little bit about the history. Probably, well, I probably knew a lot about the history, but not what I know now. And when I went to play there, most of the people there just saw it as a nine hole golf course to hit a ball around on. There wasn't a true appreciation or a sense of awe in no, playing those right. holes. That's, that's, that's less right now. I hope that's I'll, good. I'll, that's good. Right. Progress, right? Who knows? Uh, you know, I don't think it's, it's well known, um, except among the people that know it and, yeah. and, the more and cherish it. Right. And cherish that history. Absolutely. I mean, I was also involved in a, in a campaign to resist some inappropriate uh, development uh, of Mrs. Foreman's, which was... Oh, uh, yeah. I know. I followed that as well. At least yeah. the building still exists. Well, that was my big fear is that I, I think there was some talk at one point that it could be demolished. The first scheme, it was going to be demolished and turned into garages. Oh. <laughs> Man. So at least we got that far, and we cut down the number of houses that were were put in the back garden. But it's it's still a risk, you know, because it's an irony that even with historic golf courses, if you build something on the edge and a ball keeps hitting the windows, yeah, it's the course that has to do something about it. Right, right. The course has been around before the house, but it's their fault. Yeah. Just seems nuts. But, you know, that is the case. And in law, you would have to move Mrs. Foreman's hole back or you'd have to put a big net, net up. Mm. Tragedy either way, right? <laughs> it's a lose-lose proposition. Just didn't seem sensible to me. But there we go. Nothing's yeah. happened so far. So 
Well, at least it still exists. Like, due to, thankfully, folks like you fighting for it. (laughs) Tilting the windmills. All right. Thank you again, Mungo. We'll talk soon. Thank you again for joining us on the show. If you took the chance and listened to part one and part two of The Legacy of Willie Park, you got a glimpse into my fascination with the Park family and the underdogs of Musabra. The town and its golfers were one of the two epicenters of golf in the entire world, up until the events that unfolded in 1892. Listen to Talking Golf History's episode 15, The Stolen Major, to learn more about those events. There were two Goliaths in golf in the early days of the Open, Tom Morris and Willie Park. Both men claimed four Open championships. Both men were the epicenters for the respective towns of St. Andrews and Musabra. These two men laid the foundation for the Open as the first major championship, and yet they are not treated as equals. St. Andrews to this very day carries the moniker, the home of golf, while Musabra, stripped of its Open Rota, abandoned by the royalty of clubs that once adorned its perimeter, yearns for the golf world to remember it. I love St. Andrews, but folks, my heart belongs to the honest town of Musabra. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Charlotte Lewis. <laughs>